So we're going to, uh, I'm going to read to you Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 in just a few seconds. But before I do that, uh, join me in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that uh, you um, love us so much uh, that uh, even our own coldness, our own forgetfulness, uh, our own anxiety and fear and uh, uh, focus upon ourselves does not keep you from coming all the way to us in Jesus Christ. And so will you bless us today as we re-remember the truth of the gospel. And I pray that uh, today and in coming days, you will teach us more and more by your spirit what it means when the Bible says that the righteous will live by faith. Help us, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Romans 1, 1 to 17, text is in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we're going to focus this morning upon those great words that Paul says, that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Um, And I think that's important for us (laughs) to uh, take a few minutes to talk about um, you know, shame is a powerful force, isn't it? I mean, one that we all uh, have, have experienced, every single one of us, and sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly. But, but what Paul is getting at here is, is that the message of the gospel is so scandalous and uh, so uh, crazy, uh, he doesn't want the people in Rome to know that he's... Uh, 
uh, to think that he's ashamed of it. In fact, he's a bold proclaimer of it. Uh, shame is an interesting thing, isn't it? And I think it, one of the ways, I mean, it manifests itself many ways in our lives, but one of the uh, ways that it manifests itself in our lives is um, when we need help. Sometimes we feel ashamed. Uh, this past week, uh, a group of friends, I knew they were coming by the house because uh, we need a lot of help right now, and uh, they were going to come by and help clean and do some things around the house. I didn't think that much about it. Uh, and when I got home, I noticed, wow, things look really orderly in here. You know, things are put together way more than they usually are. And uh, I was really glad for that. But then I went upstairs. And when I went upstairs, I went in my bedroom. And when I went in my bedroom, I saw all my clothes that I had slung all over the place neatly folded and put where they were supposed to be. And then I opened up one of my drawers and all of my underwear <laughs> was in the drawer and rightly folded. And so rather than, well, at first anyway, when I looked at the stack of folded clothes, I thought, oh no, now they know how I live. And then I was overcome with joy that, well, it's all folded up. Now, in my defense, uh, Marty hates to do laundry, and you may ask, well, why don't I do it? Because... Uh, I set a washing machine on fire one time when I was in college. <laughs> Believe it or not, had to evacuate my whole dorm. I won't go into how I did that. I didn't do it on purpose, but which says about my skill with laundry. Um, but uh, uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, I try to wear things two or three times because I don't want her to feel the burden of having... To, to do as much laundry. I mean, there are only two of us, but it feels like we have too many clothes, which we do. Um, but the fact is, you know, I had to get over my shame of thinking, you know, this is, they're, they, they're going to find out how I live. My mother-in-law, for 25 years or so, has worked part-time uh, as a, a, a caretaker and housekeeper for folks that live, have homes in the resort nearby where she lives, and I know what she says about them. And so I just thought, oh, I bet they're talking about what a pig Steve is right now, right? What a dumb thing to feel shame over, right? In recent years, there have been reasons for Christians to be ashamed in the church, right? Uh, the proliferation of stories of scandal among leaders in the church, not the least of which is the uh, problem, the horrible abomination of abuse in the church, and worse yet, and well, maybe not worse yet, but almost as bad, is the fact that people conspire often to cover that up. Now, the, the fact is, there's never been a period of history, there's never been a time where there haven't been shameful things or shameful people 
that are a part of the church. It's true. But at the same time, one of the things that we must be very clear about as we repent and as we confess and as we are as transparent as we possibly can be about our own sin, that one thing we will never be ashamed of, and that is Christ crucified. Uh, and because that, as Paul tells us here, is the very power of God for salvation. And so whatever else may be true, whatever else we have to repent of, and we do have things we need to repent of, the fact is the gospel itself is not anything that we should ever uh, be ashamed of. And so what Paul is getting at here is, and what we need to grapple with ourselves today is the fact that uh, this message, this word, this good news that we have uh, puts the lie to all of the things that we think of and all of the things that we lay hold of. Because unless you come to some place where the gospel offends you, unless you come to some place where the gospel actually seems scandalous to you, then perhaps you haven't fully understood it. And so let's look a little bit about how Paul sets up this great statement of, of the fact that he is uh, not ashamed of the gospel. He begins by telling us that he's a Christian. Anyone who's a servant of Christ Jesus uh, is a Christian. He says that he has a, an, a, he has a special authority as, apostle, as an apostle, that Jesus commissioned him directly and that he has been called out, separated out, to give his life for this old message. That's what he means when he says that all of the prophets and all of the Old Testament were pointing to and were directing the attention of people to Jesus, the very Son of God. And so what he wants the people there in Rome to know is, is that he has good news. And that good news is the thing that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He also wants the people in Rome to know that he loves them. And though he's never been there, Paul did not plant the church in Rome. This is not one of his church plants, one of the churches that he went about beginning. He knows a number of the people there, as we talked about last week. But the fact is, he's never been there. And he wants them to understand that he's never been there uh, because he's been hindered. He's wanted to go, he's prayed to go, he's tried to go, uh, but he's, he's never... Uh, 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 for whatever reason, uh, God hasn't answered those prayers to send him there. And so he wants them to understand that he hasn't gone there, not because he's ashamed of them or ashamed of the message or anything like that. It's simply a matter of God's providence has kept him from being able to go there. Next slide. Um, and so he says that he wants to, to go there primarily so that he can proclaim the gospel, perhaps reap a harvest, see some people get converted, but also, and one thing that I think is really interesting is, so that they can be mutually encouraged. Now, typically, the way we think about, you know, visiting dignitaries coming to the church is 
that we'll be encouraged from them, you know, that they'll have some sort of message for us, or they'll have a unique teaching, or <clears throat> they'll be more interesting than the normal pastor, or whatever it is that you might think about. And so, you know, that'll be a good thing for us. But what Paul sees is, is that he wants to be among those Christians in Rome for his own benefit, for his own encouragement, for his own upbuilding, right? Because he needs to be in fellowship with them. He wants to be in you know, proximity to them so that he can be encouraged as well. We need to stop right here and just note something about that. That if Paul, the apostle, one whose whole life was set out and separated by God to do the work of gospel proclamation, needed to be with other Christians, how much more do you and I need that? Right? I mean, that's, that, we, you know, you're supposed to wait closer to the end to do, you know, more direct application, but I wanted to get that one in here right at the beginning, right? I mean, the fact is, if Paul felt like he could be mutually encouraged, that he could be encouraged by being with other believers, how much more so do you and I need that? The irritating ones, the frustrating ones, the needy ones, the, the, the good ones, the ones we like, those, you know, all of those things, we need each other for our own mutual encouragement. That's the point of the church. We build each other up, even in our own need, even as we repent together, even as we confess our sins together, we need each other. And uh, Paul feels that need, uh, you and I should feel that need as well. And what he wants to do with them as he comes and meets with them and worships and lives and he proclaims the gospel, he wants to experience with them the obedience of faith, the obedience that comes from faith. And we're going to revisit this a whole bunch, especially over the next three chapters as we look at what Paul is getting at here is because there is always a temptation when we talk about obedience to think that obedience can spring from anything other than faith. Without faith, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that means, but without faith, your obedience doesn't matter. You cannot uh, consider yourself obedient without trust, without uh, a, a reliance upon the work of Jesus Christ for you. So anytime that we obey out of a sense of we're trying to earn something or that we want to one-up someone else or that we're trying to work off our guilt or trying to balance the scales, even those good things that we do in that sense, the moral things often that we do, if it doesn't spring from faith, is ultimately not obedient, right? Now, what does he mean when he says faith? Well, there's gonna, we're going to unpack that even more, but for, for our purposes this morning, I think what, he, what we should think about is, is to have faith uh, is that we agree with God about our problem, which is our sin, the fact that we are alienated from him, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and honestly, without hope in the world, as Paul writes somewhere else, that we agree with him about our problem, and, and we agree with his solution to our problem. 
Because the fact is, and this is the wonder of the gospel, is that every single human being, every one of us, has an unsolvable problem that we cannot work our way out of, we cannot find our way out of it, we cannot technologically advance our way out of it, we can't use our gifts to get out of it, we can't use our talents to get out of it, we can't use our wits to get out of it. Um, the fact is, sin and death has trapped every single human being, and there is no way out of human making, period. Uh, and, and so that is the thing that, uh, that what faith is, is recognizing that we agree with God. Like we say when people join the church, that we are sinners without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And that we see that God's mercy is manifest to us, not just as a warm feeling or as pleasant thoughts towards us or anything like that but that his mercy is actually demonstrated to us in flesh and blood. <clears throat> that the central part of what God, the cent not the central part, but the central person in all of this isn't even us. The central person and the good news that we lay hold of by agreeing with God is Jesus Christ and what he has done, right? And so it means that we are agreeing with God, that we are sinners, and that, um, that he is the only solution to that problem. Um, now, it's interesting that he, he says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, right? Because the fact is, you know, there would be many people who might be ashamed of Paul. Remember, you know, Paul spent a lot of time in jail. Uh, and though we uphold him now as a saint and as this great uh, apostle, perhaps the greatest of, of apostles, he didn't have the best reputation, right? He was in jail a lot. He caused riots. He was run out of towns. He was viewed to be uh, uh, deluded, maybe dangerous, uh, maybe crazy, maybe, uh, uh, you know, a rabble rouser. So, so, so the fact is there were plenty of people who looked at Paul and uh, didn't like him, and they certainly didn't like his message, and they certainly didn't think he had anything to offer uh, to the people in the world. In fact, what he did have to offer was considered by many people dangerous, troublesome, problematic, uh, uh, subversive, all of those things, right? So he recognizes that many people might look at him and think of him as trouble. Um, but it's interesting, right? Paul is so taken by the grace of God in Jesus that he feels a debt to those people who actually might disdain him, to everyone. He has been so moved by the gospel, it is such a profound thing to him that God would love him. Remember, you know, he was an active persecutor of Christians before uh, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. But the fact is, he is so moved by that that he feels as if he owes every single human being, even those who disdain him, even his enemies, he owes them the gospel. He owes them his heart, his desire to share with them the pathway to life right? Now, for many of us, you know, we, 
We see people who disdain the church. We see people who disdain Christians, who, who think we are uh, uh, problematic, who think our message is problemat problematic. But the fact is, rather than react to them with disdain or uh, anger or bitterness or that sort of thing, what, we, what Paul is saying to us is, you know, the fact is, all of us are in the same boat except for the grace and the work of Jesus Christ for us. And so we owe them the debt of telling them uh, the truth about themselves, about their problem, and God's gracious provision for their problem in Christ. Um, I think that's a powerful thing for us. And I think that's one of the things that made Paul's ministry so powerful is he wasn't put off by the fact that people mocked him or people made fun of him or people looked at him and, and the way in which they did. He was so compelled by the love of God to him that he was willing to take that, willing to put up with that disdain so that he could tell people about the love of God in Christ. Next slide. Um, because the fact is there's offense in the gospel for everyone uh, because we must admit that we have a problem that we cannot solve and that only God can solve it for us. And that is the thing that is so uh, great about the gospel is it's universal. It's universal in its appeal. It's universal in the fact that it, it, it addresses the universal human problem and it addresses the, the universal uh, problem, not just of our sin, but our misunderstanding of what it is that we need to do about our sin. You see, the way we, we tend to think about it is, is uh, as Kevin prayed earlier in the services, that one of the things that we often do about that is, if you're overwhelmed with despair about your sin and you or, or you're, you feel so beat down or so much shame that you're unable to, to, to see and to understand the love of God for you in Christ, then the fact is you have a problem with self-righteousness. One time I had a, a woman come to me to confess a bunch of things, and, I, and as she was confessing them, she kept talking about how bad she felt and how bad she felt, how, you know, and I got the sense that that what she wanted me to tell her was, you know, um, that she felt so bad about this that somehow or other her feeling bad about it was an appropriate response to her sin. And what I said to her was, is you need to stop feeling bad about this because you are indulging your self-righteousness. Because you think if you can feel bad enough about your sin, then suddenly you will have dealt with it. And her response to me was, you're so mean. Yep, I am. I'm, I've always told my kids, don't try to out-mean me because I'm the meanest person you know, right? Because the, 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 fact, the fact of the matter is you can't, you, 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 you can't feel bad enough, right? Because what Paul is going to do and everything that he's going to do over the next three chapters is to lead us to what he says in verse three, in chapter 3, verse 19, and is that so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That that's what he's going for. That what he is going to do here is he is going to dismantle every shred, every speck of self-righteousness that good people have, that bad people have. And he's going to say all of that is, uh, is, is leading you to, to, to death. 
So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing that he's going to do here because he's going to, as he does that, he will hold before us the very cross and the very work of Christ. Because what he wants us to understand is this message that we have is the power of God in verbal form. The very power of God. The power of God is manifest in the world today, uh, uh, not so much by miracles, although miracles still happen. The power of God is manifest in the world today, not so much by powerful experiences, but in a message, in words, in the truth. You see, the very power of God is the fact that what we see and what we hear is that Jesus Christ has come into the world lived a life we could never live, died the death that we deserve, risen again from the dead, and everything is different because of that. Now, it's certainly the power of God uh, because it changes lives. But more than that, it is the power of God because what it does is it makes us right with God. And that's so important because when you hear me say those words that you can be right with God, you may be thinking, oh yeah, I can get forgiveness. If, you, if you're settling for forgiveness, you don't have the gospel. I, I want you to understand that. That God's work for you is more than forgiveness. Forgiveness is good. Boy, we need a lot of forgiveness. Uh, but the gospel provides a wealth of things to us that are bigger than forgiveness. God doesn't wipe your slate clean. Just your slate clean. For a lot of us, you know, there'd be a lot of relief in that, wouldn't there? Right? But God, not only in the gospel, the righteousness that we have here and what it means for the righteous to live by faith is that the proclamation of the gospel is not only are your sins forgiven, but you have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to you. You have every great, and uh, next slide please, AJ, you, every great thing that God has, that Jesus did it's as if you did them. Let me say that again. Every great thing that Jesus did in obeying his Father, it is as if now you did those things. You have his righteousness. You have his record. And so when we say to be made right with God, it's not just that, oh, he forgives me, and he likes me now, and he hugs me, and that sort of thing. Not only do you have his affection in that, but you have the same standing in terms of your place before him that Jesus has. Because you have his place of standing. You have his righteousness. And you get that righteousness simply by agreeing that without Jesus, you have no righteousness. And in Jesus, you have his righteousness. So do you see the great freedom that we have here, not only from the effects of sin, not only from its punishment, but from the, the drive that we have to justify ourselves, right? 
We're always seeking the the human tendency to justify ourselves. The the human, (laughs) like I said earlier, I'm a pig with my clothes, but I can justify that because I'm actually loving my wife by piling the clothes this high on the love seat in our bedroom because, well, that's justification. I'm justifying myself, right? So, so it's important for us uh, to see that, that all these things that Jesus did, his active obedience now is yours and it's mine. We're set free from all attempts to try to make ourselves right with God. Now, it's interesting, right? Because if the Romans are as great as he says they are, right, that their faith is proclaimed in all the world, that people all around the world talk about how great the church is in, in Rome, why wouldn't, why wouldn't he want to do more than preach the gospel to them? Well, I'm sure he talked about a lot of issues. He would talk about a lot of issues with, with the Romans, but everything that he talked about was rooted in and centered in this fact that because of Jesus Christ and because we receive this news about him, this news about ourselves, this news about what he has done on our behalf, we have the righteousness of Christ. We have the righteousness of God. And so that his preaching of the gospel to them, everything that he talked to them about would have to center in and be all about that. Now, a couple of questions. What does it mean then for the righteous to live by faith? One of the things that we tend to think about in our circles about the way the gospel works is we want to get people to believe, and then once we get people to believe, we want them doing a lot of stuff. Right? And, and, and the stuff that we want them to do is great stuff, really good stuff, usually. The problem is that, that comes with that is, is that you and I are probably fairly quick to repent of our sin in the sense that I lied, cheated, stole, lusted, uh, lost my temper, those sorts of things. Oh, I need to stop doing that. I repent of that. I shouldn't be doing those things. But sometimes you and I need to repent of the good things. We're going to... uh, say in a little bit before uh, communion, we're going to confess our sins. And we're going to confess that we have sinned in what we have thought and said and the wrong we have done and the good we have not done. Sometimes we need to repent of the good that we have done. If we are using that good as a means to gain access to God. Two boys. One is the perfect son, always there, always shows up to work, always does what his dad tells him to do, is always about his dad's business. The other one loves a party, loves the girls, doesn't really like his dad, wants to get his dad's money so he can indulge his lust and his drive for pleasure. You know the story. And so the the boy who goes off and does that finds himself living in a pigsty. He's not happy. He comes home. He tells his dad, I I I I'm a mess. 
His dad kisses him, greets him, throws a party. The good boy, who always did what he was supposed to do, is furious. And at the end of the story, he is the one with the broken relationship with his father. Because he says to his dad, I've done all these things. I did this. I, I, I have a record to present here of my performance. Look at it. And while the father loves him, and the father's heart is broken for him, he ends up with the broken relationship with his father. The issue for us uh, is that sometimes we do things for the wrong reasons. And so if our moral behavior is somehow or other a means to earn the favor of God, we probably should repent of that. doesn't mean that we want our Father's pleasure. It doesn't mean that we, we don't want, that, that, that that's not important to us. But if we think our Father's grace to us, our relationship with him, is based upon how we are doing, we need to be careful. We need to watch ourselves. And one of the ways that you can tell whether you're tempted that way or not is the level of despair and shame that you feel and the fact that you feel like you're even unable to repent of the things that you've done. Secondly, what this means is, is that we cannot save ourselves. And that is great news. You know, we have great freedom in the fact that we can let loose of all the schemes that we use to try to project uh, our goodness before others and before God, and that we can rest in the fact that he uh, uh, saves us. And then lastly, to live by faith doesn't mean that Jesus starts you out on your walk with him by faith, and then everything else about that is about your performance, right? Um, because here's the thing. On your best day, the day you do everything right, the day you are uh, blissfully unconscious of any sin, you're still sinning. You know, if, if we want to present our record to God, uh, then uh, we are always slipping back into uh, an unreliance upon the gospel. In a few minutes, we're going to sing that uh, great song. Um, and it struck me this morning, right? Um, uh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I think it would be worth you and I to think a little bit, what are some of the sweet frames that we lean into that we think is what gets us righteous before God? We dare not trust those. Uh, because not the least of which, by trusting those, we're trusting something that will fall apart. But we're also acting as if the work that God did for us in Christ 
is somehow insufficient or deficient for our need. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Let's confess our sins. Merciful God, we have sinned in what we have thought and said, in the wrong we have done, and in the good we have not done. You proclaim the gospel of God but we have been slow to repent. Forgive our cold hearts. You said the kingdom was at hand, but we have been slow to trust. Forgive our unbelief. You called us to follow you, but we are given to our own way. Forgive our rebel lusts. Forgive us for our Savior Christ's sake and renew our lives to the glory of your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. And even though we have rebelled against him, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy.